if, if you had an organization that had entirely pushed all of its business processes out to commodity, low-code, or no-code platforms, there's a real danger that that organization just doesn't really have any useful intellectual property. That's the danger. I mean, it's still possible, but the danger is that that organization, there isn't anything that's kind of particularly unique about it. And the danger is that someone else is going to come in and do something perhaps a bit more bespoke or something that the the local platforms can't do and therefore move into that market niche. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. It's undeniable that the role of software in any modern organization is essential. Untangling software from the organization is almost impossible today. With new solutions emerging as part of the low-code or no-code movement, what's the best way to organize around software effectively? Why is it so important to remove handoffs between teams and to ensure that self-directed teams can be enabled by platforms? What are the overlaps between the world of DevOps and the work we're doing at Boundaryless around ecosystemic and entrepreneurial organizations? To better understand these questions, we bring on Matthew Skelton, co-author with Manuel Pais of Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. It's a seminal text that speaks about how to build the best team structure around the role that software has in your specific organization. Matthew is recognized by Tech Beacon in 2018, 2019 and 2020 as one of the top 100 people to follow in DevOps. He curates the well-known DevOps team topologies patterns at devopstopologies.com. He is also head of consulting at Conflux and specializes in continuous delivery, operability and organization dynamics for modern software systems. In this conversation, Matthew helps highlight the real impact of digital transformation on companies and what it means for team coordination. Join us as we explore insights from his and Manuel's book, Team Topologies, Low-Code Development Platforms, API-drivenness, observability, and the impact of market validation and software-centric ways of organizing. Here we go with Matthew Skelton. Hello, everyone. It's Simone here. We are back uh, at the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today, uh, I'm here with uh, not uh, so usual co-host, uh, but uh, somebody that you already met on the podcast, Emanuele Guintarelli. Hello, Emanuele. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Emanuele will be co-hosting with me today with uh, uh, Matthew Skelton. Is, is, is it the right way to say that, Matthew? Exactly right. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. And Matthew is uh, half of the Team Topologies team, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I think it would be great to just have a quick overview of your approach. You know, more than Team Topologies uh, in general, I mean, a couple of highlights that can help us to maybe frame the, the why the work that you are doing with Team Topologies framework uh, is essential for our listeners. Uh, so maybe if you can just give us a quick uh, overview of where you are in this adventure, uh, Matthew, would be great so that we can move on into more advanced thinking about that. So the Team Topologies book was published in September 2019 by IT Revolution. IT Revolution is a great publisher, home of books like Project to Product and their DevOps Handbook and Accelerate. 
and basically a whole family of books, which are all, all, all work really, really well together. And we've been really, really pleased with the success uh, of the book. We think at the last count, we've sold something like 33,000 copies uh, in the last year and a half, which is, which is very, very good. But we've been more pleased with the comments from people using the ideas to help them make their organizations more effective at building and running software systems. And, and that's the real test for us is that people actually find it useful. People are going ahead and using the ideas and making uh, positive changes in their organization. Uh, the subtitle of the book is Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. So the, the team to these patterns are really all about a need for a fast flow of change when we're building software systems. Um, we do know that some organizations are starting to use the patterns outside of a software context, and that is great. That's maybe something we could we could chat about later on uh, later on today, but our starting point was was organizations building software systems. That's partly because that is the experience that Manuel, my co-author, and I have working from a software context, um, but also because increasingly many organizations are not necessarily software organizations, but um, software becomes a really important part of how they uh, maintain um, a distinctive voice in the market. And so being good at delivering and running software becomes a really important aspect of how successful that business, uh, that, that business or that organization can be. So that's, that's always our starting point. Looking for a fast flow of change, um, that's partly because the technology is moving very quickly, the market is moving very quickly, the, um, the kind of uh, business uh, relationships between different parts of the world are changing very rapidly. Uh, organizations need to be able to adapt. I need to do, need to adapt at speed, and that was a, that was a key kind of starting point for us. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that we we addressed uh, many other things uh, that, that relate to software development in particular, um, and also make it kind of um, um, still human centric. In particular, the the emphasis we place on team cognitive load as a kind of architectural and, and a fundamental driver for decisions when building software is, is something that has really helped uh, lots of organizations so far since, since the publication. Um, so you can sort of see it as a kind of sort of humanistic approach to software development, but that at the same time um, takes into account some of the very real um, drivers and, and constraints that uh, software um, exhibits when we're building this at scale with a view to being kind of nimble and making sure that we're building software in a way which is responsive, listens to signals inside the organization and outside the organization. Great uh, quick introduction and um, brought me to a couple of questions that resonate with the point that uh, you were raising uh, around, you know, now seeing uh, organizations using team topologies uh, elements to think about their organizing beyond software. And especially, you know, the two points that uh, came to my mind um, around essentially the role of software in modern organizations. You know, that uh, seems to be uh, an ever-increasing um, role, uh, essentially very important for organizations to master software and technologies uh, more generally. But on the other hand, I see two trends that I would like to just uh, have you kind of your reflections around uh, around those. One is the, the trend pointing out uh, towards uh, further uh, evolutions of computing, uh, moving uh, to the cloud and, you know, uh, all these conversations that we are having around serverless and essentially companies uh, increasingly 
uh, relying on third-party infrastructures uh, to run their code. And um, on the other hand, uh, these uh, large movements that, uh, that are happening around uh, the idea of no code, uh, so with uh, increasingly complexity of software being encapsulated by players that uh, provide frameworks for organizations to develop their technological enabled, software enabled uh, products and processes, but with a no code approach. So without having to actually code, but actually moving into, you know, more visual, more uh, you know, self-manageable uh, in terms of, you know, for example, a business expert being able to self-manage uh, her own software developments. So, so what are, how are these two trends impacting the role of software inside an organization that seems to be so important uh, uh, in terms of the way that you have been framing your, your framework uh, so far? It's a great question. So software, the way it's used in, in, in the organizations that, that we, we speak to, and that we're sort of um, that we're trying to speak to with the book and with the team topologies approach in general, is those organisations for whom uh, software is kind of encoding a set of business processes, or is uh, software as a way of providing a digital product, which which significantly exceeds the the capabilities you you'd be able to do if you didn't use a digital approach. So in other words, it, the approach speaks to lots of different organisations, and it, it doesn't assume that we're using any particular languages. It assumes that we've got a, a, a a flow of what we call software. And the reason we want to keep that kind of flow of software inside our organization is because that's a business differentiator. We should be writing, defining software only in those areas, really, that are a strong business differentiator. Perhaps we might define software in areas which is, which is kind of supporting of that, that, of that core goal. Um, but certainly if you use some of the ideas from the domain-driven design community, DDD, and if you combine that with, with techniques like Wardley mapping, it's pretty clear that uh, organizations that are uh, still building their own uh, infra software infrastructure or kind of uh, networking infrastructure, computer infrastructure themselves, organizations are still doing that now, generally speaking, uh, are, are sort of wasting time because all that stuff is now provided kind of as a service. Why is that a differentiator for, for for your organization? If your organization is in you know banking or retail or healthcare or something, it's not something that's differentiating your business. So you should be focusing on, on a higher order, on a higher level of of innovation. Now, if you can do some of that innovation using what's called a low code or no code platform, then that that makes sense up to a point, because if that enables you to go quicker. And meet user needs uh, in 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 a, in a shorter time frame in a way which is more straightforward. That's all great. However, there's a caveat here. I certainly have seen this kind of trend once before, at least in my life. People who are older than me have seen it at least twice before, which is that the promise of uh, code-free or low-code uh, visual design of software systems is very alluring, is very appealing to lots of people. Um, and has failed at least twice before in the industry. It's failed in the sense that the, the systems that the kind of systems you can build with no code or low code start off looking quite appealing. They, they look quite nice. It's a hey, we managed to build this prototype or this fairly simple thing. The challenge is that any software is, is simple to build uh, if, if it's kind of small and, and filling a, a very small niche. The challenges arise at managing software at scale. So when you try and scale out that visually coded thing, and it becomes unmanageable, and it becomes very difficult to understand what's happening. There's very little observability in that low-code or no-code platform. 
then that's where that kind of approach would become a problem and has become a problem of the past. So the, the generation that I saw was around VB, Visual Basic, and the kind of mess that the organizations got themselves into by, by plugging together horrendous spaghetti um, systems based on Visual Basic and people having very little idea about how, how software really needs to work. And there were previous incarnations prior to that in the, in the I think, 70s and 80s. And so there's a danger that, that, you know, that some organizations will not really realize that software is software and still needs observability. It still needs good, good uh, architecture, good design. It needs good diagnosability. We need to understand how the, how the stuff's actually working at scale. Um, otherwise, business processes will fall apart. And guess what? Then we'll need, we'll need people to come in and fix it and write some proper software. So I don't think that the current – I think there's, there's some really amazing solutions Particularly as the, the, the this particular generation of low code and, and low code stuff, a lot of it is is API driven. Um, so using an application programming interface as as the kind of uh, starting point, which is great because it means it, it's it's not tied to any particular visual design. But the idea that that non engineers or non people with very few technical skills can design maintainable large scale software systems is 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 I think a mistake. So whichever kind of abstraction you're using. Whether you're using a, an abstraction that's like kind of at the Java or Ruby or Node level, or whether you're using something that's more more no code or low code, where you can drop down into code for certain things, um, the important thing is to make sure that these systems are tracked properly. We've, we we understand how that how the the specification for that system has changed. When I say specification, I mean I am including source code. But if your specification is 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 a set of configuration files in a, in a no code system, that's also fine. That stuff needs to be in version control. You need to be able to track the changes. Um, you need to make sure you understand how that stuff actually works, how it's actually running in, um, in, 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 the, in the production, in the live systems. And when there's a problem, uh, you need to have enough observability in there to, to help you to fix it. So um, the, the principles in Teams Prodigies apply what, what to, to whichever kind of, um, if you like, specification language you're using, whether you're using uh, assembly language, low-level C, Java, .NET, Node, whatever you're using, all the way up to low-code systems, uh, it's still a specification language. We understand the rules of software in terms of loose coupling, high cohesion, specif- uh, making sure we're, we're tracking changes in version control, making sure we understand uh, we've got enough kind of test points or, or, or um, observability points into the running system so we can actually have a, have a chance of diagnosing something when it goes wrong. All of these things are... are, are um, now pretty well understood in terms of how to build and run software systems at scale. All of these things still apply to the, the um, uh, from a, from a team topology's perspective. It's just that you're moving further up the stack. You, you're, you're, you're taking more and more abstraction, or you're moving to a, a more and more abstracted view of the kind of problem space, if you like. So instead of having to think about still relatively low-level business concepts encoded into something like Java or Node, you're thinking at a slightly higher level, but you're still plugging. If effectively, it's still it's still a software system. It's just that you're not having to write everything from scratch. But that's the, that's exactly the same principle that we would expect to use looking backwards at previous generations of of, of code. Um, no one would be writing all of their systems in assembly language these days. That would be that would be not very sensible. But generations back, assembly language was, was the future. Um, after people have been programming machine code for, for for a decade, so you just got to be a little bit mindful that the um, 
each abstraction on top of the previous generation, it looks like lower code than before. And that's kind of the right way. That's exactly how it should be. We're evolving towards, you know, higher levels of uh, kind of value, moving up the value chain using higher levels of abstraction. But you cannot just throw away all of the, um, if, if there's a danger that you, you also throw away the, the key principles that make software systems actually work. Um, need this focus on kind of operability and um, ability to see what's changed through version control and that kind of thing. So all of these all of these kind of approaches, they're all great if you do them in the right context, if you make sure that you've got the um, the, the configuration, the change tracking via version control, if you've got the observability and awareness of how these things are actually going to operate, what happens when your um, no-code provider goes down? How is that business process going to, going, to, going to run? Do you just wait for, for that provider to come back or do you have an alternative? How do you manage that, that failover from one provider to another? These are all the same kind of uh, software operational discussions we've been having forever, for, for decades. It's just that now the, the, the specific details have changed. So, so in short, um, all of the stuff in Tintipodies applies irrespective of, of which kind of software you're building and whether you're building it all in-house or whether you're pulling it in from other providers too. If you're building software at the right level of abstraction for your business and you're on your business's context in the market, then you'll you'll get value from, from the Tintipodies principles and approaches. Well, that was a fascinating point, I think, you know, because you kind of make this point that... Um... Basically, you can go for abstractions and, you know, move away from assembly towards Java, for example. But uh, still, you keep, to some extent, some level of observability and loose coupling that you start to basically let go as you move into no-code frameworks. You know? so, so basically, it's like, you know, these low-code, no-code frameworks are a bit like, you know, at the edge, you know, between uh, how much abstraction you can you can you can take before actually becoming so dangerous in terms of risk and potential problems that you don't anticipate, you know, because you cannot observe them. So, to some extent, from what I understand, and this is also you know a good point that as we as I, I pass the floor to Manuela, that there's a question around this, but essentially, it looks like there is a relationship between the kind of language you use to describe your business processes and the size of the organization. Because you also make this reference to, you know, in, in a large organization also hinting towards the fact that risk, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, the risk of poor manageability of software and, and you know, kind of uh, compounds as the size grows. So from what I understand as a, as a, as a final reflection, essentially, to some extent, the managing software base, uh, uh, a software base, uh, is kind of making the case for having a large organization. Uh, so if you're a small organization, then you can move into no-code, low-code, and even a large organization can have maybe frameworks to help their own business units or units to build solutions on top of a shared framework. But still, uh, if you want to have to be a large organization that ventures out into the future, there is some certain level of, of abstraction in, in how you, you know, the software you use to empower your processes that cannot be sacrificed. So at some point, you cannot do everything with no code. So you need to have ownership. It's like, you know, code languages that we have, the most used languages that we have today, to some extent, they have uh, um, ontological, <laughs> I don't know how to say, but essentially they kind of reached a, a level 
that you cannot cross. You know, you cannot go more abstract than that if you really want to manage things. You know, if you, you really want to understand what is happening in your organization, is is it right? Does it resonate with with you? I think up to a point. Um, part of the thing here is that if if you had an organization that had entirely pushed all of its business processes out to commodity, low-code, or no-code platforms, there's a real danger that that organization just doesn't really have any useful intellectual property. That's the danger. I mean, it's still possible, but the, the danger is that that organization, th- th- there isn't anything that's that's kind of particularly unique about it. And the danger is that someone else is going to come in and do something w- b- perhaps a bit more bespoke or, or something that the, the low-code platforms can't do, and therefore move into that um, move into that market niche and that, that's what some of these thinking from like if you look at the the, the, the core domain chart pattern from uh, DDD uh, if you search on uh, search for core domain charts you'll, you'll find that online an interesting way of thinking about it in other words that that the focus of effort into making software with whatever language you're making it with should be on the area which is which is uh, where the intellectual property lies the kind of core business mission and it makes a lot of sense because that's the place where it's worth spending your money doing stuff which is uh, kind of new and uh, where you are happy to pay, you know, trained ex- uh, experts in, 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 you know, building software systems because you'll get the competitive advantage. So some of this is being kind of honest and realistic about which aspects of your organization are actually kind of important or unique or close to being unique and then focusing your 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 um your software development efforts around there whichever language you're using whichever kind of language you're using and then ruthlessly expect um the, the parts of, of of what you need to deliver that so if there's parts if there's other things you need to deliver like, like cloud infrastructure or billing system or whatever those things you know if they're not distinctive to your organization then you shouldn't be building it so those are things you should pull in from the ecosystem, from uh, from software as a service and so on. But um, expect to need to do some things custom because that's kind of that tells you that you're operating in a space which is uh, w- w- where you might have a unique advantage. Mm-hmm. It rings a big bell on my side on companies that are not developing software and still think that they have some IP as well, not some special IP. So if you have a, if you believe that you have a, some special IP and you're not coding it into software at the moment, that's a big red alert uh, for me from what I read from your words. But anyways, I would like to leave it to, to Emanuele to build on that because I think uh, this in, uh, connects very well with the questions that Emanuele was thinking about. Yeah, I wanted to um, jump on it uh, by going back to one point you raised at the beginning about um, software and the interfaces. And you were probably referring to APIs, so programming interfaces. But uh, in the book, uh, uh, you describe the connection, the intimate connection between uh, interfaces among uh, software modules and interfaces among teams uh, via Conwilo. Um, could you share a bit more about that? What's the impact uh, on the organizational design or the connection among the organizational design and the software and design and uh, how to scale this, not just to the team, but to the entire organization? So if we want to design better software, what are the constraints, the implication on the team? What are the constraints and implications among teams to the entire organization? Sure, it's a great question. So Conway's Law, was uh, first sort of defined in an academic paper published in 1968 by a guy called Mel, Mel Conway, 
he had a, a history of building computer systems. Uh, uh, he was in the military at one point and then building it for, for large corporations. And he observed that there's a kind of mirroring effect between the shape of communications inside the organization and the shape of software that gets produced. And this, this mirroring effect happens at uh, multiple different levels. So it's kind of fractal. Uh, the same, if you zoom into the organization, zoom out, you get the same kind of effect, same kind of mirroring effects. Um, now, this was treated as a bit of a curiosity for, for actually many decades, but it very recently, sort of since about 2010, there's been some research done into this potential mirroring effect um, in lots of different industries. So software, but also um, jet engine manufacturer, um, automotive manufacturer, cars and, and, and trucks, uh, and a few, uh, several other areas as well where we've got kind of uh, multiple suppliers or multiple different teams um, and lots of kind of different sort of interfaces and, and bits of the system. And uh, although it's not it's not a law of software like we've got the law of physics, uh, like gravity or something, but it's a tendency. Conway's law is more, is more like a, a kind of tendency or, or force that, that's acting. Um, and that's because really, it's, if you go back and read the 1968 uh, paper by Mel Conway, really what, what he's suggesting uh, uh, is that the shape of the organization communication pathways restricts the kind of solutions that we can find. Uh, effectively, I think it's in that paper, he talks about a, a, um, it constrains the shape of the organization communi communication pathways uh, is a constraint on the solution search space. So the shape of the organization communications kind of constrains the kind of solutions that we that we like to find, which is a massive strategic problem. If our organization is set up in a particular way with certain kind of communications in place or certain kind of um, communications preferred, then we may just never find certain useful solutions. And when we're moving at speed and when the technology is evolving at speed, like it is now, particularly with digital kind of cloud technologies, um, if we're unable to find certain solutions or if we're unlikely to find them, then there's a danger that a competitor is going to come along and, and find that, find that uh, solution before us, before we do. So... Um, this has implications then for organizations that, that really need to uh, sort of question their current uh, sort of structure and, and particularly communication paths uh, and say, you know, in what ways is this constraining our ability to actually find uh, better solutions? Now, when we're trying to optimize for a fast flow of change, as, we're, as, as is the focus of the Team Topologies book, then this strongly implies that um, we want to have zero handoffs between teams as they work on something from idea through to it being live in 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 the in the, the live environment. In the past, you've had different silos of teams with different kind of skills. Typically, maybe like design and then development and then test and then release and then operate. And those handoffs between the teams are really kill flow of change. They really prevent um, the, this rapid flow. And so a key starting point is to uh, have cross-functional teams, teams with a mix of skills in them that can take an idea, uh, they, can, they can take yeah, an idea from kind of conception or um, uh, we decide to work on it all the way through to running that idea, building the software and running that idea in, in the live environment. Uh, so again, whether we're talking about using uh, .NET or Java language or, or Node, or whether we're using low-code or no-code environments, there's still a group of people who are working on that problem, testing it, rolling out, making sure it, it operates well. Um, they've got the right mix of skills for that context, for that that 
product or that service or that part of the business domain that they're, they're responsible for. And, it, and they're responsible for making sure that thing runs as well. We want them to be very close to the running system, whatever that is. They're getting feedback from customers. They're getting feedback in terms of telemetry from the live running system that feeds back into their, into their team and tells them, hey, we need to change this or we need to fix this. We need to uh, adapt how this thing is working. Um, and so that has a strong, uh, strong effect on, on the shape of some traditional organizations because traditionally organizations were very siloed in terms of functions. You had a kind of design group, you had a development group, you had a test group and so on. And so that, that, that really changes how uh, organizations need to think about kind of managing and, uh, and reporting lines as well. Uh, often these kind of cross-functional teams cut right across those traditional uh, hierarchies. But if we want a fast flow change in order to be able to respond quickly to the market environment, then that's what we have to do. Otherwise, a competitor will come and, and, uh, and, and take our place. Um, so definitely at least two reasons. Because we want to avoid Conway's law, we want to avoid the bad effects of Conway's law rather, we, we want to make sure that we're, our, our organization communication is not fighting against the kind of solutions that we want to find. Uh, and also because if we want a fast flow of change, we need to have no handoffs between the idea and, and it being live. Then both of those things tend towards uh, the kind of patterns that we talk about in team properties, particularly the, the, the central type of team called a streamlined team with end-to-end responsibility for one particular part of the kind of uh, business domain or, or product or user journey or something like that. And so that that can look very different compared to uh, what organizations are, are familiar with. Um, some organizations already had something quite similar, which is fine. In some organizations, um, including some that we're working with now, they might have that kind of cross-functional team for a small part of that technology landscape or a small part of the user journey or a small part of the product. But then there's kind of some upstream delays and other responsibilities, which means that that team doesn't really have full end-to-end responsibility. So in, in some organizations that they would also need to extend that cross-functional ownership backwards through the organization to give them more uh, true end-to-end ownership rather than just uh, over a small part. So it, it, it definitely has a, it has definitely has some big, I'd say challenges uh, for some organizations that have, that have been optimized for different things in the past. Um, but certainly those organizations that are adopting a model like this and have, have been adopting a model like this for a while, I find that they're able to go very, very quickly, run, run very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with Manuel in the background, and we kind of have a second part of this question that, uh, you know, if, if you look at your team structures, you know, the team structure in your framework, and just to also tell us to our listeners, you talk about four main teams, team types. You know, one is a stream alignment, uh, aligned uh, team uh, that you also already just quickly introduced. Uh, then you sp- speak about the platform teams that, uh, you know, I, I try to recap, but essentially those are the teams that provide solutions that are cross, you know, to some extent to many, many other teams. You know, I have this responsibility to build uh, technologies that serve many others. Uh, then you have these complicated subsystem teams that to me sound like also a bit you know, maybe I'm wrong, but essentially um, pockets of complexity in the organization related, for example, to legacy systems or, or things like that, that need to have a, their own, you know, specific uh, managing team. And then you talk about enabling teams that, uh, to my understanding, they are the ones that essentially 
help to reduce the cognitive load for the others in the organization to integrate new features, new technologies, or for example, new new elements of innovation that come from the from the market. So these four teams more or less make your universe. And uh, I, I'm, I'm interested really to understand a bit more around how do uh, this team structure um, how does this team structure connect uh, with uh, traditional uh, functions of an organization, traditional elements of an organization? And uh, the first and most striking point here is uh, sales. So essentially market validation. Uh, how do you validate uh, these new elements in, in the market? You know, Because, for example, how do you define the features? You know? And uh, you spoke about this idea of having uh, zero handoffs you know, between teams. And I'm wondering, so how is this stream-aligned team that is developing a certain feature set and so on gets market feedback no? in, your, in your experience? How this connects with traditional elements in an organization such as a Salesforce? Uh, and this conversation, it can be generalized more, more, more generally, for example, in you know, other main features of an organization that uh, normally are, you know, the, uh, for example, the HR function or the marketing functions and so on. So how does this software-centric ways of organizing connect with the traditional, oh, I mean, not, not even so traditional, but with some inherent fit functions of an organization and especially the market validating ones? So how, how do this picture fits together? First, I should just put my own uh, words to the, the four different team types because quite a few people kind of get, get the interpretation wrong because they're bringing pre, preconceived ideas of existing kind of teams. So there's some really important distinctions that we've got uh, for, for the purpose of these different teams. Our starting point is always streamlined team, end-to-end -end responsibility, no handoffs, um, very close to the customer, uh, and long-term responsible for, for a particular part of the kind of business domain or service or product or user journey or something. So they're able to go very, very quickly because they've got, they've got a very uh, high degree of uh, business uh, context for what they're doing. And they've got a high degree of trust because we've, we've taken the time to, to build the trust within that small team. When we say team in the team topologies world, we, we, we say, well, this is probably, probably not bigger than about eight or nine people. Um, in some organizations, it seems like you can get up to about 15 people um, to have that, uh, still a high degree of trust. But we, we're, we're limited as human beings. Anthropologically, we're limited in, in the, the, the number of people we can really have high trust with. And the high trust is part of what allows us to go very quickly. So you, you, can't, you cannot keep adding people to a team. A team at the absolute outside seems to be about 15 people, and that's validated by sports teams around the world. Almost no sport in the world has more than 15 people on the field, and a very good reason for that. And often the teams that have 15 people have actually two two sub teams if you like or two or three or maybe four sub teams inside that in, inside that team on the field and that's where you get the high trust because our starting point is always streamlined team and and if you if you do not need another kind of team then don't have another team what we're trying to optimize for in the, in those teams is, is a rapid flow of change however at some point because there's a limited number of people uh, that team um, will reach a limit uh, a, a limit of the kind of things that it can deal with so, for example, it might start off building the the, the domain-specific software, um, and it might take on all of the stuff around data and infrastructure and security and so on, and that might be great because that helps them to go really quickly. But at some point, the amount of stuff they're dealing with is too high for them to be able to go quickly with the domain-specific things. 
And that's the important point. That team should have a domain focus, typically speaking. And so at some point, the cognitive load on that team is too high. The extraneous cognitive load specifically is too high. The things they are thinking about which are not related to their main area of focus are too high. So it's slowing them down. So what do you do? Well, as you mentioned, um, you might get some help from an enabling team, which is a team of experts who can help to bridge a capability gap. That might help the streamlined team to understand how better to use some kind of machine learning or data or infrastructure or technical practices or whatever. And that might give them a bit more um, capacity in terms of cognitive load. Fine. But you still might end up with the same problem three months down the line. Um, So what other options are there? If there's a very specific part of the system which requires a, a high degree of specialization, that could be suitable for a complicated subsystem team. And the, But the only reason to have a complicated subsystem team is to take away very highly specialized cognitive load from a streamlined team. That's the only situation that we're, that, we're, that, we're, that we're talking about that's worthwhile doing that because the danger is that a complicated subsystem team becomes a bottleneck, a blocker. In a similar way, a platform, what we call a platform, in, in, in our context, in Teams context, this is always an internal, well, most of the time when we talk about platform, we're talking about an internal platform. And again, the only reason for us really, or the, the primary reason to have an internal platform is to reduce the cognitive load on streamlined teams by taking away some of the non-differentiating details of something like data, machine learning, infrastructure, um, deployment capabilities, um, you name it, um, that kind of stuff, um, which is not, if those things are not related to the main business domain, then that's a non-differentiating. So therefore, they're, they're, they're a candidate for, 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 for removing from the streamlined teams. But a platform could be the right model to use, even if you only have a single streamlined team. It still might be the right thing to do. It's not that we don't really, we look at this through a different lens. A platform is not, we don't create a platform because there are many, many teams that could use a particular service. That's not the decision criteria we use. Our decision criteria is the platform must reduce the extraneous cognitive load on the streamlined teams and the streamlined teams must be able to choose whether or not they use the platform. It's entirely up to the streamlined team. If the streamlined team wants to build its own database or wants to build its own machine learning engine, and that helps them go quickly in their domain, then they should be free to do it. It's very, it's very important that we kind of retain that sort of uh, perspective. It's about making sure there's fast flow and a limit to cognitive load in the streamlined teams. It's a different decision criteria compared to platforms of the past. And that partly answers the, your, the second part of your question, which is how do the streamlined teams keep a, uh, or how, how do they relate to the, the kind of market sensing aspects of an organization? There's a pattern in the book, uh, and I think it's part three of the book, that we call a kind of service experience team. This came out of some work that, uh, that I did uh, in, uh, in UK government a few years ago. Um, and you've got the idea of a group of people who are, who are thinking about the holistic user experience around a particular service. In, this, in that case, it was citizen services, but it can also be the, a consumer product-based thing as well. What's the holistic experience around that whole the whole end-to-end service, which might be much longer than, than, than just provided by software. Um, effectively, they're, they're thinking about the, the full lifecycle product experience. And part of that, of course, includes market sensing and, and, and feedback from customers. 
Uh, and that team is sort of sitting alongside the Streamline team, pulling in data and, and, and insights from, from other, other places, market pricing, uh, customer feedback, whatever, and making that available to the uh, making that available to the Streamline team, or helping the Streamline team to work out how to detect that stuff better and bring that information in. Right, right, right. It's interesting to see how you push all the IP, all the differentiation into the Streamline teams. Uh, that str- strongly resonates with our work in the 3EO, so the Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Enabling Organization, where essentially the micro enterprises that have the same team structures that you have been mentioned, so you know eight, nine, you know maximum fifteen. So this idea of the micro entrepreneurial unit, let's say, you know they they develop most of the innovations, most of the new value propositions uh, in, in a in an entrepreneurial organization. So we really resonate with that, you know. And uh, and I was interested when you said platform teams instead they they kind of scale the non-differentiating uh, capabilities, if I understand well, right? So so I, the idea is that uh, a platform team runs common services that are not differentiating. Am I right? Well, uh, I think that's what, that's what a platform for us ends up being. But the driver for that is always t- uh, in the context of reducing cognitive load and increasing speed uh, in the streamlined teams. That, that, that's what's driving what ends up in the platform. Right. My, my, my reflection was uh, a bit more towards this idea of uh, interfaces and opening interfaces to the market. So as, so as soon as something becomes non-differentiating, it makes a lot of sense to me to open this interface in the market so that you can integrate more differentiations, which is essentially what happened with... Uh, when, it's, for example, there's this story about Amazon, no, that uh, you know basically de- develops this uh, interface in connections between teams, and suddenly it, it doesn't make uh, much difference anymore if you have a category manager from inside the Amazon or a third party that provides you the products to put into the marketplace. So, to some extent, as long as you platformize a certain feature of the organization and you deem them not. Uh, uh, beating uh, uh, anymore a uh, kind of uh, differentiating element, but more like an enabling, like a sustaining element for more innovations to happen on top of them, it makes a lot of sense to open them to the ecosystem. So you don't just constrain the innovation that is going to happen to what's happening inside the organization and you start to integrate, uh, you know, in, in worldly terms, the future from the ecosystem. So because the ecosystem becomes your future sensing engine. So once you create these platform features, let's say, you know, that uh, then you kind of uh, push to growing the ecosystem, the leverages on them, and to try to centralize and consolidate like a cloud player would do. So essentially, you know, this idea that, for example, our cloud infrastructures tend to be concentrated, uh, at least in terms of um, uh, uh, operations, you know, uh, and uh, this makes a lot of sense, you know, because it's not differentiating, and, uh, and 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 then you know it's maybe worth pushing the differentiation into the streamlined team, and then you maybe maybe there is the place where cloud systems make more sense. On the other hand, if you if you kind of use an external system, then you lose your possibility to capture these new patterns. Maybe you know? so these are maybe the frictions that, and the, and the, the friction between keeping your platform elements inside versus 
you know, keeping your, just your stream aligned, aligned teams and, and, you know, kind of outsource your own platform elements. What do, what do you think about that? One, one thing you should point out here is that for us, platform is actually more like a grouping rather than a team. And the, inside a platform, inside a team's bodies platform, we would expect to see primarily streamlined teams. It's a fractal, it's a, fra- it's a self-similar fractal, kind of the same pattern at multiple Zoom levels. That's what I mean by fractal. And so we, you've got streamlined teams focused on things inside a platform. The platform itself is like a product. So what? So if it's, in, let's say, if it's a cloud infrastructure platform that we're building internally, you, know, you might have a, a team dedicated to uh, logging. You might have a team dedicated to um, automated infrastructure, a team dedicated to security, whatever, a bunch of things like this. And so you've got the same kind of patterns happening at multiple different levels of the organization. And you, you may have a, a platform, internal platform that itself relies on another internal platform, one that's a kind of a lower level. Uh, and again, inside that one, you would expect to see multiple streamlined teams. We're, we're using the same patterns at multiple different levels of the organization. So even inside a platform, we've got we've got end-to-end responsibility for a particular product or product slice. It's just the, the type of product is very different uh, compared to outside of the platform. Um, but again, we're, we're because we've got end-to-end responsibility in multiple streamlined teams, we're very close to our customers. Our customers are now internal teams, but we've modularized the, the features of the platform, if you like, which is important because, because of the speed of technology change, particularly with cloud providers. We need to expect, if we decide to build a, an internal capability this year, we need to expect that within, I don't know, within a year or, or 18 months or two years, that that one of the cloud providers will have built that capability and that we should be expecting and planning to stop writing more software around that thing ourselves and simply consume it from the outside. At least we should absolutely expect that to be a choice that we need to make explicitly. So yes, we might decide to keep it internal because that gives us more uh, signals and helps us to helps us to innovate more quickly. But also we should be completely content to completely happy to throw away effectively what we've been doing for the last two years and consume it from the outside because that lets us go much more quickly on on, on other things. So it's absolutely essential that the, the an internal platform in any platform, but an internal platform is run. Uh, as as a kind of product and as an ecosystem with, with an awareness of an ecosystem around it, we're absolutely expecting to retire things on a, on a quite a rapid timescale to enable us to make sure we're, we're always focusing on the stuff which is differentiating. So we might build stuff in the platform that is differentiating for the platform at that level of uh, Zoom, if you like, that Zoom level. Um, we would not expect to build a relational database from scratch ourselves inside most organizations we just consume it from a cloud provider um, but we might do something custom around machine learning in 2021 because that's not really yet commodity in in, in wardley maps terms so it might be there might be some value in doing that but i don't know look look five years in the future that's probably commodity so we'd expect to be laying the foundations to enable us to consume something as a commodity in the future it helps us to think and that's why one of the reasons why we, we emphasize so much um, APIs in the, in the Team to Bodies book, particularly APIs applied to teams, was because getting uh, thinking in terms of boundaries and APIs and uh, APIs that work for flow um, is an important, I mean, it's important for, for good software, but it's important for good organizations because thinking like that helps us to think in terms of uh, being able to swap things out. If we've got a good API around a particular capability, we're expecting to be able to swap out that 
capability that we've built ourselves for something that we can plug in later. Yes, it's not as simple as that usually, but at least if we've got some loose, loose-ish coupling inside the organization, then that, that kind of activity becomes easier to do in the future. Amazing. Uh, so before I, I let Manuela jump in for the last question on, on, on some transition-related aspects, uh, I would like to just highlight a couple of points uh, for our listeners, you know, because I, I think these points that you raised in the last, in the last bit really... Yeah, I mean, really create some exciting conversation around what is inside and what is outside an organization. You know, because I was listening, for example, to a, a talk from Shopify extensions, uh, extension platform managers, and uh, they were stressing the point that when they created this extension platform strategy, they had to mobilize the internal teams to develop plugins and extensions, essentially basically using the same infrastructure as the third parties were using. So that's very interesting and points out to an organization that uh, essentially cannot uh, really make a distinction between what's inside and what's outside in terms of uh, developing capabilities, you know. So I, I think this is really, really interesting and it's a great start there for, for a further conversation around, you know, the impacts of software and interfaces with uh, what's inside and what's outside an organization, how organizations should look into their ecosystem uh, much more continuous to, to their internal teams. So I think uh, this is really, really interesting. And uh, yeah, Manuel, I would like to, as we enter the last part of the conversation, maybe you want to explore something related to the transition. Yeah, Matthew, I just wanted to look into that. So we discussed a number of strategies for uh, teams to better uh, work together and uh, deliver value. But uh, how can traditional organizations uh, move closer to that? Is there any transition path, any best practices, uh, any idea about how to infuse some of, uh, of this thinking into large traditional slow you know, organizations? And we have so many of them in the market. It's a real struggle for lots of organizations that have... That have uh, especially for organizations that, that have actually improved quite a bit from their original starting point. So in the, their original starting point might be, oh, we did one software release per year. And now they're doing one every quarter. That's four times as quick. And they think, wow, we're really good now. And of course, their competitors are doing 400 releases every day. So they're still orders of magnitude away from where they need to be if they want to survive in the, in the longer term. Uh, but they, they feel like they've, they've made a lot of progress. It, it can sometimes be a bit of a barrier. So one, one approach that quite a few organizations seem to take is to have what they might call a digital division, which is really a strange name to, to my mind because it's all digital, right? All of the software we're building is based on digital computers. But anyway, what it seems to be is, is the so-called digital channel. In other words, the, the route to customers or to citizens through digital devices, so mobile phone or, or, or laptop. Um, and those parts of the system are sort of registration, my account, um, a few things that you can, you can place in order, this kind of stuff. But often those digital, so-called digital systems don't really touch the real back-end processes. So an organization can make some kind of good progress in some areas with the so-called digital part of it, uh, adopting loads of good new practices, using lots of cloud, uh, going really quickly, but they're always struggling against the fact that the back-end systems are extremely slow. Uh, it's like um, tying, you know, like a world-class sprinter to um, to to uh, uh, 
like a cart, like an old old wooden cart or something, is that they're not going to be able to pull it very quickly. And what I've seen is is inside lots of these organisations, people who are running the older, slower, more comprehensive parts of the of the estate uh, are very sceptical of cloud, very sceptical of modern processes, very sceptical of things going quickly. Um, a lot of that is through fear because they know they don't have the awareness and, and skills to, to to work in that space. And they can often put up a lot of resistance to uh, to changes that that uh, that threaten that that kind of existing gatekeeping position. Um, now they they often think that they're doing the right thing because they're protecting the data and so on. Um, but ultimately, that is that is that's significantly working against the viability of those kind of organisations. So, one approach that I have seen work, many people have seen work, is a kind of a very thin end to end. Uh, slice, where we take something that has value um, but is quite kind of quite constrained or quite small, and uh, map out what it would take to have a kind of end to, full end-to-end responsibility for for changes in that area. What would that actually entail? And then, and effectively, a prototype, and 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 get the principles and practices in place, including all of the uh, approvals, all of the uh, uh, kind of compliance sign-off, all of that stuff. And uh, start to map out what that what would be needed to put in place to to enable that kind of autonomous flow of change. Um, and we might even so in, in some places I've even started with uh, the the thing that we are deploying is a text file, a text file with readme instructions that says you know hello world, um, this is this is the first deployment that we're that we're doing. Uh, and it's just a text file. In other words, it's not even executable. It, it the it cannot do any. Uh, it can't reach any systems because it's not code. Effectively, it's just just a piece of text. But what we're doing is 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 getting all of the kind of approval gates, all of the or removing removing the gates, but making sure all the, the approvals are automated. Um, getting all the kind of uh, authorization to to be able to deploy something like a text file from our prototype streamlined team all the way through into production environment uh, and validate that we've got it there. Get all the observability, telemetry, logging, all that stuff in place as well. Um, but also all of the decision making around the changes to something around that product or, or what that product will become, so that we don't have a chain of twenty five different people deciding, having to sign off on on a change. Um, and we've changed maybe looked at how the budgeting works, so that we can actually have a, a we've got a pot of money that that, that enables us to have a, a steady flow of, of smaller changes um, for that particular product area. And use that as a way to again sense and explore what the larger changes will need to be, um, and get and get that feedback and 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 uh, characterize, document if you like the the kinds of decisions we had to make and and things things we had to change in order to set things up like that, and then we, we take that awareness and then um, that can inform the organisation the kind of changes that will need to be made. Uh, at a larger scale, if if the organization wants to become more nimble, it's uh, interesting uh, reflections and uh, not so easy implications for many organizations. But uh, this is the challenge that uh, and the opportunity that we are facing. So good with that. Thanks. A wonderful conversation. I think that really brought us to the um, to talk about uh, the real impact of digitalization on companies and organizations you know so it's really about understanding that uh, pervasive technology like that cloud 
uh, you know, pervasivity of software capabilities have really changed uh, the rule of organizing. So, for example, I've asked you about sales, you know, and I asked you, you know, how does it work that uh, that you know, for team, from stream aligned teams to to get in touch with the market, and you clarified that a stream aligned team uh, is in touch with the customer, and so I, I was reflecting with this idea that now when you build software, you can distribute your software, your uh, products and services so easily to your customers. You know, it's uh, it's really sometimes you know you don't really need sales. You know, and when you do need that, sales is pretty much just a growth engine. So it's something that you use to get in touch with more customers, to whom you communicate through the software updates that you generate to the software that you create. So I think, uh, I mean, that was amazing reflection for me and conversation. I'm really thankful for for this. And for sure, we're going to work more into integrating the team topologies uh, elements into our entrepreneurial ecosystem and labeling organization. So, so Matthew, just as a, as a final point to this conversation, I don't know if you want to add something that you believe is really important. And for sure, I would really love if you can uh, point out to our listeners where do they find your latest work and what to expect from uh, the uh, team topologies uh, duo. I, I love the questions coming uh, coming from uh, from you today and and all the stuff that you've been pulling together and the boundaryless and things because this this way of thinking is um, it's so key to you know the the, the future of of software enabled or digital enabled business. This way of thinking about ecosystems, thinking of being able to use different um, different partners in different ways, the kind of concept of APIs, and about extending that into into slightly more abstract uh, context. These things are all, all, all um, we're learning from how uh, how we've built software over the past decade and applying this into kind of organisations and, and and businesses. And these are the things at scale. So it's not surprising that we're taking a software approach uh, like this. So. We've got a website, teamtopologies.com. You'll find a whole load of stuff there. We are in the process of uh, starting to update the website. Uh, we've got loads and loads of material on there, and those changes will be coming out throughout the rest of 2021. We've just launched our Team Topologies Academy. This is our online self-paced uh, training. Uh, there's one video there right now, Team Topologies Distilled. Uh, Manuel and I are talking about um, the, the kind of core concepts, and we'll have coming soon a new course uh, I mean, by, by the time uh, you, you listen to this, um, as a listener, this this may already be out. Uh, of course, around platforms, treating platforms as a product. I uh, mentioned some of that stuff today. Um, and there'll be increasing number of courses coming out uh, over the coming months and years. We'll be partnering with people too, um, possibly also including uh, you two, Simona and Emmanuel. So we'll have a chat about that, see if, see if we can do a course together. Um, but other people as well who have got uh, awareness around similar concepts to team topologies, but we're, we're kind of effectively growing an ecosystem around this. People who've got experience in data or domain-driven design or all kind of uh, organizational dynamics, perhaps, but pe- people who've got awareness of, of complementary areas that, that, that sit around team topologies. Um, and we're also launching our partner program soon. Uh, if, you, if you go to teamtopologies.com slash partners, you can sign up for some early information. Thank you so much, uh, and uh, our listeners, uh, please uh, buy this book, uh, read this book, because it's a crazy good, uh, crazy important stuff. So do it and catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. 
Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.